This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast at HarvardParoxysm.com. I am Jason Mann. Rich couldn't be with us this week, but we do have a, a very special guest uh, returning to the show. Um, he is a, a, a great uh, ba- basketball history expert, and uh, a great pleasure to have him back on the show. Adam Cribbley, welcome back, sir. Thanks, Jason. So um, we are going to talk about, we're continuing our, our WrestleMania series, and we are talking about... Um, uh, the uh, the Celtics rivalry with the uh, St. Louis Hawks uh, from the uh, from the late 1950s through the uh, 1961, they played um, four in four finals in five years. Uh, back then, the Hawks were in the Western Conference, so actually Western Division. There were not even conferences yet, um, and um, they were definitely the two premier teams of uh, of that time before the uh, the Hawks fell and the um, Lakers became the Western Conference powerhouse for for most of the rest of the '60s. But um, you you've been looking into the the Hawks uh, lately. Um, you, what what sort of the interest there, and what have you found out that you you feel like is really interesting about that team? Well, the the St. Louis Hawks are you know, kind of kind of get a, a short shrift because they were they were in St. Louis only a few years uh, between stops in Milwaukee and in Atlanta. Um, and uh, I think that even when they were in St. Louis, they kind of got overshadowed. Um, St. Louis is very much a baseball city, and so they got they got overshadowed by the Cardinals even when they were here. And then by the time that they left, we were you know kind of on the cusp of basketball becoming a lot more popular um, with the rise of the the Boston uh, Lakers rivalry of the '60s and uh, and early '70s. And so the the St. Louis Hawks are are, are in many ways kind of forgotten about. Um, and so. One of my interests was was obviously the kind of this unknown history, but another part of it is that um, I actually I'm a I'm a professor of history in um, in Missouri, and so lacking a professional basketball team now in the state, and my choices being either the St. Louis Hawks who won a title in the 50s, 
or the ill-fated Kansas City Omaha Kings of the 70s, uh, it was a it was a fairly you know, fairly easy choice to latch on to uh, yeah. to the St. Louis franchise. Yeah, well, unless you want to go with the spirits of St. Louis or the St. Louis Bombers. This is true, right? Yeah, yes. the uh, the NBA iterations, I should say. Right. Yes. Yes. The uh, yeah, I I think the Bombers lasted one or two seasons in the in the BAA. I don't even think they made the uh, sure. transfer over to the NBA. And then uh, the Spirits of St. Louis, they have a documentary uh, already um, uh, dedicated to them. So yeah, they're probably not too much more to mine for. Uh, right. Them. No, and that's a, and that's a really good documentary. I, I have to say, it's one of my favorites on the uh, of the thirty for thirties. Yes, absolutely. So. So I, I I guess the the starting point with this rivalry is the uh, the huge trade that these teams uh, made in um, the 1956 off season. Uh, the the Hawks with the second overall pick uh, selected uh, Bill Russell. Uh, Russell did not uh, was not selected by the Rochester Royals for various reasons that we don't need to get into, but they were not smart reasons. We'll put it that way. Um, and it. Um, and even though obviously the Hawks trading away Bill Russell um, was not a good decision, they did get two Hall of Famers for the deal. Uh, Cliff Hagen, who was um, uh, who very young player who had a a long productive career, a lot of it with the Hawks, and then Ed McCauley, who had been uh, one of the most productive players of the '50. Uh, was kind of undermanned as a center, but was a very good offensive player. A um, all NBA caliber, you know, multiple time All NBA player, um, a, uh, um, a a very good uh, offensive stats production wise, one of the leaders in win shares of uh, his period. So toward the end of his career, but um, the the Hawks did get a, um, a a title out of this, and you know, four finals appearances in five years. So. Even though the the, the trade itself, um, clearly the Celtics won the trade by a very, very large margin. You know, if you're told that it's one of the worst trades in NBA history, I, w- I would be skeptical of that point of view. I agree. And I think that, going, you know, before doing research into this project, there's that perception that, you know, short of, uh, of, of the Blazers drafting Sam Bowie ahead of Michael Jordan, that this was the worst, you know, front office decision in uh, – in, in NBA history, and I think that that's that's kind of overselling that point. Uh, the you know the Hawks got two Hall of Famers for Bill Russell, and obviously there's you know in the in the in the 50s and 60s, short of getting an Oscar Robertson or a Jerry West or an Elgin Baylor or a Wilt Chamberlain, there's no you know th- there was no player on on Russell's level. But to to be able to get two uh, two Hall of Famers and as you mentioned uh, a title uh, and a couple other near near misses at a title. You know, I, I think that from the Hawks' perspective, they they certainly justified the trade, and uh, and the owner, of course, years later is uh, w- was still talking about how it was still a good decision, and it won them, it brought them a title, and um, yeah, it, it, I think it's kind of maligned as this you know one sided uh, one sided deal when in fact it, it benefited both both franchises, obviously the the Celtics more, but 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 certainly St. Louis still benefited from it. Yeah, uh, for for sure, and um, you know this series is discussed in the uh, the book Rise of a Dynasty um, by um, by Bill Reynolds, and it's a um, you know it, it's of the of the Bill Russell books I've read, I it, it's I would put it less in the recommended list. I mean, there's definitely strengths to it and weaknesses to it, but it does do a nice job of breaking down this series, and it's basically a um you know looking back at uh the series and kind of the nba of that season it does a nice job of kind of framing where the nba was in the sports landscape where kind of boston was and where the celtics were in that landscape and it was not not good for the celtics in boston um and um and then some some good tidbits um from uh from that series as well yeah the the 57 um, is kind of a, a, a landmark or a, a watershed finals um, in, in much the same way. I think you can draw a comparison to sort of the, uh, you know, the, the coming of the dynasties of the of the Celtics and Lakers in the 80s, how this is really, really pretty transformative. And I know you've talked to some of your other guests in some of the last couple of podcasts about how how Russell and Chamberlain kind of bring about a much more popular game. Uh, and I think that that kind of starts in in '57. You see a lot of kind of a lot of national interest even in the uh, in the game. I was uh, reading reading in one air, in one article that 
the 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 timing actually ended up working perfectly for the NBA when the uh, when the Celtics and Hawks first met in the finals because it was right after spring training for baseball. So all these sports writers that were covering spring training came back to their cities and, and are looking for uh, looking for material. And this drops into their lap that you have um, two two of the biggest cities in America at the time hosting this you know uh, this final series and of course then it goes to seven games so i think that it's uh yeah both uh, both uh reynolds in rise of a dynasty and other um historians have kind of pointed to this as a, as a really important series that as i talked about a little earlier that because the st louis hawks no longer exist kind of gets uh gets pushed under the rug yeah and uh one thing that i hadn't thought about but uh but it does make some sense is that uh you know boston and st louis had had a you know they they had a baseball rivalry in in they were in the world series i think in 45 so it's been a while but um but but that was still at least somewhat in the minds of people and you know both you know were were strong baseball um cities and this was sort of a a start of the nba uh, moving to larger markets, the Pistons had just moved to Detroit. Um, you know, in, in a few years, Syracuse is going to um, move. The the Lakers are going to move to uh, Los Angeles. Um, so, the, the basically, the the smaller cities are no longer going to have teams once we reach sixty one, sixty two, or so. The NBA is going to kind of outgrow the uh, smaller cities, so that will you know help with the major league perception and just it being a St. Louis and a Boston team gave it that a little bit. And honestly, I hadn't thought about it, but this was the first finals appearance for either team, which is pretty impressive in a, um, in an eight team league. I mean, it had been a bigger league in the early years before um, uh, basically those teams all fell apart and they, they consolidated, but um, still for both these teams to have been in, you know, dating back to the BAA, you know, had been around for 11 seasons for neither one to have made the finals yet is uh, a little bit of a surprise. Absolutely. And, and these, these teams also, I think we look back and, and talk about all the great players on the Celtics, but that these Hawks teams were, were very competitive, even from this, this first year, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Celtics of course had, you know, eventual hall of famers at pretty much every position, but the uh, the Hawks managed to not only have you know their superstar Bob Pettit, but also um, they had a couple of other players. You mentioned Cliff Hagen, uh, Ed McCauley, and they had probably the most important, um, I guess, underrated player on their team was another Hall of Famer uh, by the name of Slater Martin. And Martin actually matched up really well with Bob Cousy. They're both these undersized, kind of scrappy point guards. Uh, Cousy was better offensively. Martin was better defensively. And so in some ways, Martin neutralized Cousy a little bit, and that allowed um, that allowed the other Hawks players to uh, to you know to compete with the with the Celtics. We have these these clips of um, Bill Russell blocking shots and long outlet passes, and Cousy leading the fast break. Well, that that happened against St. Louis, but it happened less because uh, because Martin was playing you know good D. Um, and so I think that. They, they really matched up well, almost position by position. Obviously, there was no one to compete with Russell, uh, but Pettit gave, uh, gave the Celtics a lot of problems, too. Yeah, and, um, you know, they also had, they had Jack McMahon, a, a guard who was another, you know, pretty stout defender, although he had his problems with, uh, with Bill Sharman, which we'll get into. Um, uh, Jack Coleman, a forward, both had come from good uh, Rochester teams in the, from the early 50s. Um, and uh, Chuck Scher as well, you know, was a, was a pretty good, uh, bruising center they also had um uh alex hannum who was a uh, player coach and uh would be the only coach other than red arbach and bill russell to win titles between 57 and uh, 69 so um both in the in 58 with the hawks and in, in 67 with the uh, sixers um and then the celtics this is of course russell's rookie year this is also tom heinson's rookie year and he actually won the rookie of the year that season um russell uh, missed uh a good portion of the year because he was in the Olympics in Australia. Um, so he didn't join the team until um, about a third of the way into the season. Um, and he, um, you know, he, people kind of understood even, I think at that point that he was the better player, but, uh, but Heinzen was a really strong rookie um, and performed well. And he performed very well in the series as a matter of fact. Um, 
Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, Kuzi was the league, had been the league MVP in 57 and was uh, probably by far the biggest star in the NBA. And he was kind of the one guy who would get like on magazine covers and would really get like a lot of uh, celebrity. Like he's probably, the, if you talked about, you know, pro basketball, he was the, probably the guy that, you know, uh, grandma could name, you know, and that was probably about it at that point. No, you're probably right. Um, and so the, you know, Kuzi's the, Kuzi's the, the well-known commodity, and especially on the East Coast, uh, where basketball was bigger. And in the Midwest, um, you know, Pettit is is kind of the, the counterpart in many ways. He was um, uh, born and raised in Louisiana, went to LSU, um, and comes to St. Louis. And he is, along with Stan Musial, Musial they're kind of the two big names in, in St. Louis uh, sports at the time. Yeah. Really, in the Midwest, he was, he was basketball, was uh, Pettit. Yeah, and St. Louis didn't have um, – well, I guess they had football at that point, um, but they didn't have hockey yet. Um, sure. So, um, you know, and, and those are uh, – obviously those sports are in different landscapes than they are uh, today. Um, baseball obviously being the, uh, the, the the prime thing, I guess probably still in St. Louis, is the, the prime thing, especially I guess with their team leaving. Um, right, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, the other key players for the um, Celtics, uh, a very young Frank Ramsey, who would be a, a trend center, kind of the, really the first sixth man to kind of embrace you know, that, that modern take on that role. Uh, Jim Luskadoff, who was a really tough bruiser type, um, was, I, I, I guess, sort of the, uh, at this point, each team sort of had a designated hatchet man who would, you know, kind of come in and, uh, rough somebody up if, if that needed to happen for their team and, you know, would, would throw fouls. So he kind of uh, filled that role, had some skill as well. Um, I was really a big muscular guy. Um, and then uh, Andy Phillip and Arnie Risen, who had been uh, to finals with other teams, uh, Risen had been a, a champion with the, uh, with the Rochester Royals, I think in 51. So um, yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, former Royals on, uh, on uh, involved here. So yeah. Um, yeah, so um, this series is extremely close series. Um, their um, Boston won games one, three, and six, each by two points. Um, and St. Boston, Louis. St. Louis won those games. I, I'm sorry, yes, you're right. St. St. Louis won those games. Um, and then Boston won two blowouts. They won game four by five points and game seven by two points. So so very, very close uh, You know, margins in uh, – five of those seven games. Um, and then both games one and seven were both two overtimes and they both were 125 to 123 scores. St. Louis winning the first game and uh, the Celtics winning the, um, the, the, the uh, game seven um, for averaging in the series, Bill Russell had uh, 13.3, 22.9 rebounds, 3.3 assists. Heinsohn had 24 points and uh, 12.6 rebounds. Uh, Pettit had uh, 30.1 points and 18.3 rebounds. Um, those were the the standouts there. And this, uh, when we ended up, when we did our uh, Game 7s uh, series uh, last year, we, we went through every Game 7 in NBA Finals history. And this was chosen as our uh, as our, our number uh, two, I believe, um, uh, of Finals uh, game. And uh, you really just an incredible game. With, real quick, real quick before sure. you... Uh... No, I was going to say real quick before you get to seven. Um, so it was was it was it was a really interesting game. So I, I hate to cut you off. Um, yeah, no, no, go ahead. Game seven because game seven is is, is fascinating, uh, but game three has these really kind of funny things. So uh, Red Arbach, um and the uh, so Ben Red Arbach, who's the Celtics coach, and, and Ben Kerner, the the owner of the uh, of the Hawks, had this have this rivalry going on. And and so before game three. Uh, Bob Cousy went up to, to Red Arbach and, and he told Red, he said, you know, the rims just, they feel a little off. They feel like they're a little, a little high, uh, you know, just they're off. Um, and so he, he doesn't make a big deal of it, but of course, you know, Red Arbach does because he already has this rivalry with the St. Louis owner and he's convinced, you know, Ben Kerner's trying to screw him over. Um, even though of course the Hawks would have to play for half on this, on this rim. And so he has the, he has the, the proverbial janitor come out with a 10 foot long pole to measure the, uh, the rim height and and Ben Kerner saw this and just was infuriated. He uh he came running down a, out of the stands and and he starts yelling at Red and starts uh you know according to Red starts cursing uh cursing out Red, and so uh so Red just flies off the handle and uh, and roundhoused him in the face, you know, punched uh, punched out the owner of the of the Hawks, 
you know, they're, they're separated. And uh, the NBA commissioner, uh, who I believe was Maurice Podloff um, yeah. at the time, uh, doesn't suspend either of them for the game. Lets them both, you know, stay in the game or you know, stay in the uh, in the to watch the game, and ends up finding Red uh, three hundred bucks afterwards. And so the game, you know, starts off on that note, and then got not even test here during the game. Um, you know, Tommy Heinsohn was was probably the the offensive star of the series for the Celtics. But in game three, he got ejected. He got he got a technical foul and then got thrown out. And the, the fans are just booing him. And uh, apparently the, the St. Louis fans really like to throw eggs on the floor um, or eggs at the Celtics when the Celtics would come to town. I, I really couldn't find when that started. But so they're pelting eggs at, um, at old you know Tommy Heinsohn. And Heinsohn came off the floor. And uh, you know, the, the best description I could give was that he gave the crowd a, uh, a gesture. So no one, no one, you know, I, I didn't see anybody specify which gesture, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we can draw our own conclusions. Uh, yeah. I, I think we could, we can have a fair guess on that. And, you know, the thing was, is that, um, is that Ben Kerner and, um, and uh, Red Arbach had had a past. Uh, uh, Arbach had been the coach of the Hawks when they were the Tri-Cities Blackhawks. Um, uh, for one or two seasons and um basically um Auerbach left after Kerner um broke his promise to not interfere and you know not not make trades or not you know not, not do things without um you know without Auerbach's say so um you know they they'd already kind of had a contentious uh relationship through that and then that um added uh obviously drama once they started to um you know play each other in in these in these uh series continually and there's another story about um, uh, about Ben Kerner getting into it with Johnny Most, the uh, famous Celtics announcer, where it, it wasn't during the series, but it, I think it was a regular season game. I, I wasn't entirely clear on that, but it was before the game. It was another thing where Kerner, you know, makes some sort of comment about, you know, um, the fact that um, – you know, um, about the fact that most works for, you know, a, a, a so-and-so, uh, throwing a curse word there. And, um, and then most takes exception to that and then they get into it uh, as well before the game. So, uh, just, you know, they, uh, uh, people were rowdy, uh, back then, you know, there was definitely a, um, you know, an added thing to that. You talked about kind of how the crowds would be, you know, they would throw eggs at guys and, you know, and, and there would be some of the most horrible, um, and St. Louis was notorious for this, some of the most horrible, um, you know, ra- racial slurs being thrown at, at the back, at the black players and, you know, St. Louis, um, being a sort of a notorious town for, um, I, I believe it was still segregated at the time. And, um, and it was, uh, it was one of the reasons why, um, the Hawks, you know, supposedly one of the reasons why the Hawks traded Russell because they felt like the city wouldn't necessarily, um, support a black player. And then they were one of the last, uh, teams to, uh, well, they were the, the, the last all white team to win an NBA finals. And they were, you know, one of the last teams to kind of, um, you know, fully integrate. Right. No, and, and you're absolutely right. That St. Louis was, was at the time, um, you know, it's, it's just a few years after the, you know, the famous Brown versus the board of education decision that desegregates schools. Uh, but in many ways, St. Louis is, is kind of behind the times. Um, and so segregation is still, still in place. Uh, you know, African American players are, are kind of warned that if you go and play, play in St. Louis, that, um, you know, you have to, you have to either, either be okay with, you know, eating at segregated restaurants or, you know, just, don't go there. Right. Uh, and so, no, you're absolutely right. And so the, the fans are throwing eggs. There's, there's the racial animosity. Um, and, and, uh, as you know, I, I you were speaking with, uh, Yago Colas the other, uh, the other day about, um, the, the rivalry between Wilt and, uh, and Russell and how that was this kind of competitor thing. Um, I, I, I think here, this is more rivalry. There's a lot of hatred, hatred and vitriol between the, the Hawks and Celtics and between Hawks fans and Celtics fans. So yeah. no, this is, this is a very, it's a very intense rivalry and it, and it kind of uh, comes out of nowhere. It, it comes in, in 57 and for a few years, it's pretty hot. Yeah. And, and I, like, I don't recall there being like a whole lot, I like between the players themselves, I feel like, you know, I, I don't remember that many stories about like, it's really not that level of animosity. I mean, I'm sure there were instances of things, you know, happening and, the games are physical and all that, but I don't really remember like, you know, then maybe like a few, a little, some aggressive fouling and, you know, and, and, sure. you know, what, the story that you talked about with Heinsohn, I, I don't like remember like a whole lot of that. It was more, I guess it stands out more when it's, you know, owners and uh, general manager coaches, you know, I, I feel like sure. the, 
Uh, you're just not you're less used to seeing those guys get into the scraps than you are the players. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so it culminates in a big game seven. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it probably, you know, uh, one one of the greatest game sevens ever. We don't have footage of it, but, you know, just the descriptions of it. There's 32 lead changes, 28 ties, um, uh, you know, we're with about a minute left. Russell has like this really dramatic, like sprinting across the court as Jack Coleman is about to uh is about to get a layup and get like you know what will what could end up you know being like the game winning layup after he had actually uh, won the game in uh, in game one, but Russell you know sprints down the court and uh, and hits like a, a dramatic chase down block that both Heinsohn and Kuzi said was basically the. The, uh, Heinsohn said it was the greatest play he'd ever seen, and Kuzi said it was the most incredible physical act I ever saw on a basketball court. So, um, at that point, uh, closer to the end, Kuzi misses one of two free throws, so the Celtics are in the lead, one hundred three to one hundred one. However, Pettit is able to coolly sink two free throws in the closing seconds to send the game into overtime. Um, at the end of the first overtime. Um, Coleman hits another clutch jumper, um, and then um, what with uh, just seconds to go, um, uh, or I'm sorry, in the second overtime, McCauley ends up fouling out after he fouls uh, Laskadoff, who was, again, more, uh, I'm not sure what his free throw percentage exactly was, but he was uh, not necessarily in there for um, for that skill, but more in there for his uh, ability to, to kind of be a bruiser. He was not necessarily the most... Um, offensively uh, productive uh, player. Although he, he saw 67, uh, 70% from free throws uh, that year. So I guess he wasn't ter- terrible at them, but either way um, he was able to make both and able to tie it at the, um, at that point, or, or actually, I, I'm sorry. They gave Boston a 125 to 123 lead. And then there's this dramatic, um, not really much they can do. So they had to take the, the ball inbounds and, um, Alex Hannum, who is the player coach who barely has played in this series, is the last eligible player on the Hawks bench, decides that he'll toss the ball all the way across the court, bounce it off the backboard in the hope that Bob Pettit could tip it in, which is like this, you know, like one in a million, like no one thinks that this is like even possible. And incredibly, he's able to bank the pass off of the board, but Pettit isn't quite able to to, to control it. And the tip falls out, and and then it's over. And the uh, Celtics have uh, win the series. Uh, they, they they shave Russell's uh, beard um, as he had pledged to allow them to do if they uh, won. And it was uh, uh, the the beginning of an era. Yeah, and, and it's um, that's one play that I would love to have seen on YouTube. Uh, from what from all indications, the the Hawks players on the bench are kind of looking at each other like, really, you, you know, Hanum thinks he's gonna he's going to hit the backboard there afterwards they they're saying things like, you know, we didn't think Hannum could hit a barn from inside. <laughs> and so he, you know, he throws the ball and, and uh, whether they're covering for, for Pettit or, or whether this is, this is real is that Pettit was kind of stunned that it actually worked. And so the ball bounces right to him and he's almost, you know, he's fumbling, fumbling it a little bit. And uh, sure. but he, he apparently had a good look from about, you know, 12 or 15 feet and just, just missed it off yeah it, yeah i mean it, it's it's just one of the obviously difficult in the situation to do and 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 pettit had um 39 and 19 in that game um russell had 19 and 32 heinson at 37 points 23 rebounds um and this is also famous uh or infamous for koozie shooting two of 20 and Sharman shooting three of 20 in the game so uh, it was the uh it was the young players the rookies who were able to kind of uh, take control cliff hagan also had 24 and 16 and and Slater Martin had twenty three eight and seven, so um, yeah, yeah, just a really um, a, a very dramatic situation and great performances, but obviously only one team could uh, could win the series. So right, and, uh, and so then uh, in the off season, then um, they you know it's they they're gonna have a rematch in fifty eight, and um, it's it's basically the same the same crew. The, the the Hawks don't don't make a lot of changes. There's a little a little shifting. Uh, Alex Hannum, the the player coach, just becomes coach. Uh, but one thing I, I I did notice that was interesting is that Bob Pettit um, used this finals loss as motivation. 
So he was a, you know, had already won the NBA MVP award a few years earlier. And he started working out with a, a strength coach. Um, he actually started lifting weights at a time when the, uh, all the, the, uh, the coaches and general managers and owners and everybody was, uh, were, were telling him not to do it, that he would get muscle bound and not be able to shoot well. Well, he put on, uh, he, he eventually ends up at about 245 pounds, about 30 pounds over where he'd come into the NBA. And, uh, and he gets a lot stronger and, and more muscular. So, you know, there's, there's no personnel changes, but, but you definitely see a kind of a, a motivated uh, Hawks team coming out in, in the 57, 58 season. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I knew about the, the fact that he was, you know, kind of one of the forerunners for, uh, you know, for weightlifting. I did not realize it was actually you know, um, after that off season. And, yeah. And the, the, it was interesting because the, the Hawks had had just a, a very tumultuous year that year. They had, they had three coaches. Red Holzman was the first and he, he was fired after they were 14 and 19, um, Slater Martin, the point guard, was a player coach for a while, but he sort of hated doing it, and Alex Tanum liked doing it, so they decided to make Alex Tanum the uh, the the coach there. So you know they were thirty four and thirty eight that season, but they they kind of you were able to sort of gel together by the end and were playing really good um, uh, basketball. In fact, they um, uh, had to win tiebreakers versus the Lakers and the Pistons. Uh, just to make it into the playoffs, um, and then, uh, or, or I guess that was more of a seeding issue, but because I think all three teams had the same record, so uh, then they beat the Pistons, uh, they swept the Pistons two uh, nothing, and then they swept the Lakers three nothing to make the finals against the the Celtics, who were forty four and twenty eight, and had swept the uh, Nationals, who had been their longtime rivals, three um, uh, zero uh, in that series. So, um, so they really had to come down from a lot farther, and there was a lot of anxiety in Boston during the time of like. Um, yeah, it'd been a decent length wait for the Celtics to accomplish anything. They'd had some, you know, good playoff. They made the playoffs, but just had, you know, fallen short usually against the Nationals. Um, and uh, there was a lot of angst. like, okay, why are the Hawks hanging with them? They they shouldn't really, you know, it was clearly Boston had the greater talent, but um, and a lot of it was just the fact that the uh, the Hawks were able to you know kind of win the uh, all the close games, um, or most of the close games, other than of course Game Seven. Right, and. uh yeah, it was it was definitely you're right. It seemed to be the the Celtics' time. The the Lakers are are making some noise, but the yeah, getting into the playoffs in '58, um, I was I read somewhere that in order to to get in, they had to you know beat the the Pistons and the Lakers for seeding, and that the Pistons game the only the only place they could find was a uh, the practice gym at St. Louis University. So they you know at, at at a noon game they they played the the Fort Wayne Pistons to. Uh, to, to get the right then to play against the Lakers. So Which yeah, you get an idea that uh, about how Bush league kind of the NBA was in the, uh, in the mid fifties to play in a college practice gym for, for a shot at the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so 58, uh, is a, uh, the, the Hawks, uh, get their revenge. They, um, they win in, in six games. Uh, the Hawks were 41 and 31. They had beaten the Pistons in five games to get to the finals. The Celtics, who were 49 and 23, had beaten the Warriors in five games um, to, uh, to 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 make the finals. Um, these these were both uh, seven game series. I think this was the first year where that round was a seven game series instead of a five game series. Um, and the Warriors had been 56 champs. This was pre Wilt, but they had still had a strong team with um, you know with with Paul Arizon and Neil Johnston kind of as their, as their key players. Um, Tom Gola as well, I believe was, or I forget if, yeah, I think he was there at that point. So, um, so the, as you mentioned before, the Celtics were basically the same crew. The only guy really was, uh, Sam Jones was a rookie on that team, but he didn't play that much in the finals, only 64 minutes. Um, and as you mentioned, the Hawks really, um, not much of a change other than, than the Alex Hannum, um, retirement, uh, this is another one where uh, yeah, four of the six games in this series are decided by three or fewer points, and all of them are won by the Hawks. It's it's weird how the Hawks were able to sort of win all those close games. I don't know if it you get if it's just luck, if it's just um, you know Pettit uh, was able to you know kind of come through and be. Although you know certainly the the Celtics had reliable clutch players. I mean, even though Russell was not a strong free throw shooter and was not the you know the type of offensive player that. Some of the other players had they they had Kuzi and Sharman who were great free throw shooters. It, it's just odd that they sure. that it kind of kept um, being that situation where the Hawks would win all the close games. No, and, and there's there doesn't seem to be any reason that I've been able to find. Pettit shoots about seventy five percent. 
Um, Cliff Hagen's a really good free throw shooter, you know, shooting in the eighties, but uh, sure, it's really Martin. Yeah, he's, yeah, strong as well, but right. But yeah, no, it it just seems to be one of those one of those things that uh, fifty eight. It seems to be the Hawks' year, and they they won a couple uh, a couple close games in the finals. Um, and in fact, this is the the Hawks really got in, uh, incredibly popular. Um, the owner actually had to Ben Kerner had to sell uh, closed circuit tickets. He decided to sell tickets at a at a local movie theater, and they and they broadcast the game there. So you could you know, there weren't enough seats in the auditorium in St. Louis, so. So they simulcast it. Um, so this was, I mean, this was getting a lot of a lot of attention, especially in St. Louis. Yeah, and the Hawks had had sort of a bad experience in Milwaukee because they moved there, and right after they moved there, was the 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 Braves moved from Boston to Milwaukee. So they basically, you know, lost the, you know the ability to be the major league team in that market, and um, you know, and re, re um, connected, you know, were able to kind of bounce back and go to St. Louis and. Um, and with that success, yeah, they, they actually did get some attention and obviously St. Louis is a bigger city. So, um, you know, they were able to do pretty well for a while, um, even though they were only there for 13 years. Um, and you know, the, the, the big part of this series is that Russell, he injures his ankle in game three while attempting to block a Bob Pettit shot, uh, ends up missing two games in the series and then is really limited in game six. Boston actually did win game four, um, in, in a, um, uh, to, so, you know, they were able to, um, you know, hold on without him for a little while, but obviously losing Bill Russell, that's a, that, that's a huge loss. Um, and, um, I, and I, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, Kuzi talked about kind of how the Hawks were definitely like the most intense rivalry that he had. And he felt really like Slater Martin. He talked about it a little bit, but as far as like, he was really the guy that Kuzi kind of had the most trouble with, um, at this point, he was kind of his, um, not quite his kryptonite, but definitely like he was just, you know, a stout defender. Uh, Martin had been, you know, a, um, a key cog in the, um, in the Lakers dynasty of the early fifties. So he had a lot of experience and, you know, I, a huge championship pedigree and um you know he was a guy that um and this was kind of the last time where you know he and martin really matched up with both those guys basically at the height of their powers right yeah the these guys are as i said kind of they almost um counteract each other or cancel each other out and so with russell out then the hawks are just able to take over and uh the clinching game is game six and the Hawks won by a single point, but but really the the remarkable thing from from the game six win is that Bob Pettit went for fifty points. Uh, so Bob Pettit went for fifty points. Uh, hobbled Bill Russell is able to, you know, to to not get to you know some of the some of the balls he probably would have been able to to tip or, oh, or at sure. least alter. Um, and I, I love this moment. So uh, at the uh, at the end of the game, um, there were. Uh, just a minute or a minute or two left in the game and they came to the bench and it was almost a moment from the movie Hoosiers where, you know, Jimmy Chitwood says, I'll make it um, because Bob Pettit, you know, the teammates all kind of look to him and uh, you know, he tells them to just give me the ball and get out of the way. And so he, he took over. Um, he made 19 out of the last or 18 out of the last 21 points in the fourth quarter for the Hawks and, and just really kind of takes the, takes St. Louis on his shoulders and, and you know leads them uh, to this victory with the you know with Russell hobbled and the other Celtics just not able to keep up. Yeah, kind of reminiscent of um, LeBron in that series of the Pistons, you know, taking over you know, like right. twenty nine out of the last thirty or, or whatever that was, kind of the same idea there. Yeah, and um, yeah, Pettit hits a, a shot over Russell to give the Hawks a three point lead. Um, then Heinsohn hits free throws to cut it to one with sixteen seconds left. Um, Pettit then is able to rebound a Slater Martin miss to for a tap in to steal it. He's been able to jump over a bunch of different Celtics in a crowd and is able to to uh, tap it in. So, so sort of a, um, a little bit of a a, a similar type, uh, you know, where he was not able to tap it in the year before. He's able to tap that in and and, and seal it and you know get fifty points, which is kind of a you know a magical number at the time. That was the that was the finals record at the. Um, Time. That that may be a game a game seven record still. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. But, it is, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a clinching game record. So it's okay. it's the most the most points ever in a game that ended the finals. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would definitely be a game seven. I double checked that yes. one. Yep. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yes, that is a uh, or no, yeah, it was game six. I'm sorry, you're right. So right. a yes, a, a final game of the ser- of the finals record. But that's um, 
that's still very impressive. Um, yeah, Sharman had 26, Heinsohn had 23, Russell only had eight points in the um, in, in that game. Obviously, as we talked about, limited with um, limited with injury. So, um, <clears throat> so 59, the Hawks lose to the Lakers. They're upset. Uh, Lakers are still in Minneapolis. It's Elgin Baylor's rookie year. Even though the um, Hawks were a stronger regular season team, they ended up losing Boston uh, sweeps the Lakers and wins back-to-back titles. So the next Hawks um, Celtic series is in 1960. It again goes seven games, although this was pretty dominant effort by Boston. Uh, Although again, the Hawks uh, in this case didn't really, um, you know, they, um, they did win the close games, but there weren't that many close games in the, uh, in the series it was it was more of a of a dud of a series there's only one game that had a pretty close margin the others were four big blowouts one by the celtics and the hawks winning two games by 10 and one by three right right yeah no it was a close it was a close series when the hawks won and when the celtics won they tended to blow them out yes yeah and that which is honestly kind of the the mo for uh most of the, of the series but um so yeah we, you know pretty good evidence that the celtics were the better team and they obviously won three at the series but um just interesting how that worked out. And, and the Celtics, of course, had plenty of luck during their time um, in, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about um, on other episodes, uh, you know, Russell had a 10-0 uh, record in uh, in Game 7s and, you know, won almost every close, um, you know, Im- important uh, NBA game during his career. So, um, you know, they, 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 certainly the Celtics benefited from luck uh, in a lot of ways as well. But in this rivalry, it seems like the Hawks generally benefited from, you know, they, they, they got the coin tosses during these um, series. But sure. um, in this case, the um, the Hawks were 46-21. and 21. They'd won a rematch uh, with the Lakers uh, four games to three um, to, to get here in the division series. The Celtics uh, won 59 games, which was a record at the time um, in the 75 game series, uh, 75 game season. Excuse me, uh, not a 75 game series. That would be <laughs> that might be hard to follow. Um, the uh, The Celtics beat the Warriors uh, four games to two. This was the first ever Wilt Russell uh, series, which we'll uh, get into a little bit more detail in another show. Um, the of course the two years later the uh, the Celtics and the um, Hawks have changed uh, a little bit one more than the other the um the the Celtics had uh, Gene Conley who also was a pitcher for the Milwaukee Braves for a lot of his uh, career uh, but he also played basketball and and did it fairly well as a backup big um, Casey Jones uh, who was uh, Bill Russell's roommate at the University of San Francisco had joined the team as well, was a great defensive guard and uh, Russell Cousy, Heinzen, Ramsey, Sharman, and Sam Jones are the, uh, the, the key Celtics at, uh, at this point. Uh, all of them, of course, have, have been on the team for a little while. And uh, what, what about the Hawks? Who were the uh, key players for the Hawks? Well, the, the Hawks had, and you mentioned this earlier, but they had such tremendous turnover in coaching um, 13 seasons in St. Louis and they had 10 different coaches. So this is no, you know, no different in a, uh, uh, for the 19, um, uh, 1960 season, uh, they had convinced um, Ed McCauley to become the uh, the coach. He uh, he had retired and kind of been told that he was going to be the new the new head coach. Uh, they did add they replaced McCauley in the front line with uh, uh, Clyde Lavalette, who was a uh, he'd played alongside George Mikan with the Lakers um, and uh, had played in Boston as well. Yeah, uh, and or he was going uh, to play in Boston. Um, in, in correct, the future. right? Yes, right. He, yeah, um, he he ends up with Boston. Yeah, he just recently uh, he just recently passed away. He was the first uh, player to win a uh, uh, to the uh, NCAA, NBA, and Olympic titles. So was he Lavalette? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so he he's added, uh, and so they they have this now this front line that's just stellar, and it's probably you know again I'm I'm spitballing, but you could I, and it was argued. Uh, at the time that it was the greatest front line in, in NBA history. And of course, you know, now um, you obviously can make arguments for the, the 1980s Celtics or whatever, but this front line of uh, Clyde Lavalette and, and uh, uh, Cliff Hagan and Bob Pettit yeah. uh, were called by the, the team owner called them the unmatchables yeah. and also held this big press conference that they were the, the hundred thousand dollar front line. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so, so, you know, he, he's has this big press conference to announce this hundred thousand dollar front line and Lavalette and Hagen are standing in the back, and 
one of them starts saying, you know, hey, how much are you making and how much you – well, they decided that Pettit was making at least half of the 100000 if uh, <laughs> if they were actually a $100,000 front line. Nice. But, so, so they add Lavalette. They, they have this really talented, uh, bruising um, you know, front line uh, that, that can certainly match the Celtics. Uh, and the the problem is going to be again, you know, with the Celtics dominating in the in the 60, uh, 1960 finals, is going to be that the backcourt just just can't keep up. Um, Mart Slater Martin is near the end of his career. In fact, this is his last his last hurrah. He's he's done after the nineteen sixty finals. Yeah, and the, and, and he, he had actually been injured earlier on in the postseason, so he didn't even play in these finals. Right, and so they they you know the 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 Hawks always had problems finding. Um, uh, finding backcourt help they actually had traded for uh cy green who was the the guy who picked in front of bill russell in 1956 they added him to to try to shore up their backcourt uh, but but that didn't that didn't take either so uh they they added some some pieces again ed mccauley's the new coach uh clyde lovelette you know adds to that unmatchables front line and cy green tries to provide backcourt help but really, the the Celtics were a machine by this point. Yeah, um, yeah. The the other key addition, probably uh, Larry Faust, who was sure. a um, he was aging, but he had been one of the the best big men of the nineteen fifties. Uh, a forward for the um, uh, for the Detroit or uh, Fort Wayne Pistons, I guess then Detroit uh, became Detroit. Uh, he may have left by then, but either way, he was uh, another guy who um, definitely added. The, they certainly had some good front court depth uh, that season for sure. Um, and, um, yeah, it was another, even though it did go seven games, it was not really a, a season. Ed McCauley later admitted that basically he thought he had no, the Hawks had no chance in, um, in the series. And, you know, they're, they're facing against the team that had, had the best record ever in NBA history. So that would, uh, that'd be a little dispiriting. Right. So, yeah. um, especially without Slater Martin, you know, uh, again, hit the last, um, uh, guy koozie said you know slater was the only one i used to call for help on i used to tell my big people to set picks as often as they felt like it just to get him off him and um in the series um russell had 16.7 points 24.9 rebounds three assists per games heinson with 22.4 points 9.7 rebounds ramsey with 18.4 points and 7.3 rebounds uh pettit great uh series at 25.7 points 14.9 rebounds 3.6 assists per game and then cliff hagan with uh, 23.6 and 10.1 so um as we mentioned cliff hagan keeps contributing you know probably the second best player for the hawks um you know during the in this era you know during the years that pettit there i think hagan probably clearly is his best uh teammate during that time yeah and he had a he had a killer hook shot he uh he could shoot it from up to you know he he claimed from you know 15 to 17 feet out he'd he'd throw up the hook shot and uh he had actually been a a center in college with the kentucky wildcats and his first coach tried to convert him in the pros to a guard, and that didn't take real well. Um, going from center in the in college to to guard in the NBA, but he really kind of hit his stride playing alongside Pettit. Uh, sure, you know, and, thrown and, in those hook shots. Yeah, and, and Pettit was another guy who he, he played center in college, but he had to kind of reconstitute himself as a forward, and he really had to learn how to, you know, uh, become a strong jump shooter. And he was really, uh, you know, one of the first bigger jump shooters in the NBA to, you know, have, really have success with the jump shot, which is really coming into vogue by the late 50s and, and, and being used in, in a widespread way. Yeah, and if you watch, I mean, if you watch, there's not that much film on Pettit, but in, in his um, interviews, he would he would shoot a jump shot, but he would jump in, he would he would jump toward the basket, mm-hmm. and he was a he was amazing at drawing fouls. He went to the line, yeah, you know, ten or twelve times a game. So, uh, and you know, he hit seventy five percent of them. So he would get seven or eight points a game just from jumping towards the basket on jump shots and drawing fouls, and he was tough around the rim. So I mean, the combination of him being able to shoot jump shots and Hagen being able to to shoot those those hooks or jump shots from from 12 to 15 feet I mean that that was putting pressure on uh, on Russell at least to to come out and, and defend that so he was they were good a good combination uh, yeah absolutely it we might as well ask it now since we had a a question regarding it um uh, yeah, Pettit belongs in the uh Top five power forwards uh, all-time discussion. Asking this question, uh, Jason Palumbo at Double Dribble. Um, uh, sorry, it's cut off. Uh, I forget his. Uh, it's, uh, double, it's dribble, double Dribble WP. Yes. Um, yep. It's it cut off my tweet deck. Excuse me, Jason. I apologize for that. Um, 
asking if Pettit belongs in the top power forwards all time discussion and um, how high I would um, uh, I would say that uh, extremely high. <laughs> well, OK, so ESPN just did their uh, their top players at every position and they had him ranked seventh. Yeah. Um, and it's it's, it's you're tough. arguing yeah. different eras. And I mean, really, until um, until the 19, I would say until the 1990s, he was the undisputed best power forward of all time um, with, you know, some people probably advocating for Dolph Shays, maybe or or Elvin Hayes. Um, but really, he was it until the Charles Barkley, Carl Malone. Uh, and then the Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki. I mean, so he's in that conversation. I think that power forward is really a tough position to to rank or to uh, to differentiate, especially across when you're talking about eras, thirty or forty years. Sure, years different. Yeah. Uh, I, I did uh, not knowing Rich wasn't going to be on. I, I did do a little bit of a, a very little bit of statistical stuff. Um, career win shares for power forwards. Uh, Pettit is actually eighth behind Carl Malone, Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowitzki, Kevin Garnett, Charles Barkley, and Dolph Shays. Uh, yeah. But if you do win shares per 48, he had a pretty short career. Yeah. And so he's second to Charles Barkley. Yeah. I, I would, uh, yeah, I, I could see him as high as third, um, but probably closer to like fifth. I would, I, I, I would say like uh, he's definitely behind um, Duncan and um, Malone because of um, longevity. Um, and, and just how great Malone was um, into his late thirties. Um, you know, some of the other older players, um, you know, they lasted a long time, but they they weren't at, you know they weren't necessarily strong players after age thirty five like um, you know Malone clearly was. Um, so yeah, I, that that's, that would be around the the place that I would put him. You know, again, it, it's yeah, it's a tough comparison. It's a, it's a tough um, you know a lot of things to weigh, and we're not the biggest fans of ranking. Uh, players but yeah that's kind of generally the the, the spot that i would kind of throw him in um I mean, he, by, his, by his last season 32 he's his career down so he's he can make an argument he was on top he he retired when he was ready and, and at 32 he was clearly had some injury concerns and played yeah. longer than i think we downgrade his career because he's struggling at 34 35 Right. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and it was extremely rare for someone to play more than, uh, you know, 11 or 12 seasons up until, um, you know, Dolph Chase was really the, the only guy up until the mid seventies when guys would start to kind of play, you know, 15, 16 years or so. And then, and, and once, you know, Kareem retired, he, he broke all those records, but, um, sure. but, but yeah, there was nobody play, you know, you, you want to penalize him. I mean, you, you know, I'm not going to, um, you know, I, the fact that Carl Malone played 20 years and was awesome for almost all that time or 19 years or whatever, um, you know, I can't hold that against him and not, you know, consider that when, when comparing him to Pettit, but it's not like Pettit, you know, was, his longevity was perfectly, you know, um, typical for his time, which also has, has to be considered. So, um, so game seven of the series was a pretty dominant effort by the Celtics. They won uh, 122 to 103. Uh, Russell had 22 and 35. Kuzi had 19 uh, and 14 assists. Uh, Pettit had 22 and 14. As a team, Boston out rebounded St. Louis 83 to 47. So, uh, so, so yeah. much of that power St. Louis front line, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where were you guys? Where? where <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, Pettit did kind of did his part. I don't know what. Uh, I don't know where where uh, Lavalette and um, and Hagen and Faust and all those guys were. So I think Faust may have been hurt also in this series, if I uh, if I'm not mistaken. He, I know he didn't play that much in the uh, in the series, so uh, perhaps that had something to do with it. But uh, and he was older too. So, um, but yeah, the um, that is uh, basically it for the 1960 uh, finals. So we get to their uh, the 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 final year of their. Um, of their rivalry, the 1961 finals. And this is a, uh, pretty much a walkover by the Celtics, uh, four games to, uh, one, the Celtics were 57 and 22. They had beaten the nationals, um, that year, um, four games to one. A lot of the, a lot of those nationals actually ended up, uh, being 76ers that, uh, the Celtics would face later on in the, uh, in the sixties. So, um, funny that, that, that was, you know, the, the bulk of that group, um, the Hawks were uh, 51 and 28. So this, I believe is the smallest record disparity between the two teams, um, that they 
played in the finals. Only only six game difference, and they beat uh, the Lakers, uh, who had moved to Los Angeles four games to three. This was Jerry West's uh, rookie year, right? Yeah, and Elgin Elgin scored thirty five points a game. I mean, this was a good that was a good Lakers team they beat. Yeah. Uh, to get to get there, yeah, and young obviously, but yeah, the the, the Celtics were about to be in, um, uh, you know, seven finals during the uh, uh, for the rest of the decade, and then you know, um, was it three more in the seventies? So, right. uh, yeah, so that was a uh, you know, obviously very uh, you know, the foundation of a very of a not quite a dynasty because they only won one title, but a you know, a, an extraordinary accomplished team. Um, so this was Bill Sharman's final season. Uh, he was kind of the, the the first guy of the early Celtics, really key players to retire. You know, they were going to start, you know, it's going to be Kuzi um, pretty soon and Heinsohn and, um, you know, the uh, a number of guys up until, of course, Russell and Sam Jones in the in the final season. Um, the, the Celtics were pretty much the same as they had been. They had added uh, Satch Sanders. He was kind of the key um, contributor, a really good a defensive uh, player and rebounder. Uh, the Hawks, uh, not quite as much transition as we're used to, but they did definitely had some new pieces. Well, they added really their, their big addition was, uh, the, their new point guard. Uh, they, they drafted Lenny Wilkins to replace the departed Slater Martin. And yes. so uh, just the time that they are, they managed to hit on a backcourt player. Their one good backcourt player, uh, had left. So Lenny Wilkins though, becomes steps right in and, uh, almost immediately contributes to the, uh, to, to them getting to the finals. Yeah, and they were. Um, it, it, it took some acceptance for um, for for Lenny to um, you know be accepted as a rookie on the team and you know in, in a new environment. But uh, he did well. I, um, the the Hawks were also a team where the there there always kind of been rumors, and I, I've never really uh, known that much about specifics. Maybe you you know having studied them a little bit more as far as the. Um, you know, there were racial cliques on a lot of um, teams in the uh, 50s and 60s as more black players were added to the league. And um, the Celtics generally were pretty harmonious in that front. But my understanding is the Hawks were not as much. They they did. Have, they had some problems. Um, when Lenny Wilkins came into the league, uh, his uh, local restaurants refused him service. Uh, friends told him not to date white girls. Um, and... Uh, the neighbors they they warned him of neighbors poisoning his dogs like it was yes. it was really rough for uh for lenny wilkins yeah. um coming into the league and yeah. so i there there's not a click when there's such a, a small minority lenny wilkins was one of only one or two uh two hawks players in fact um the the racial uh animosity on the team really gets worse uh or, or really i should say changes um really the next season starting in 62 and then the rest of their time in st louis uh, though it, it obviously kind of starts when when Wilkins arrives in '61. Right, right. So um, the yeah, yeah the Hawks were now um, uh, also coached by Paul Seymour, who the who Ben Kerner had hired during the 1960 play, playoffs, but didn't bother to tell. Um, even though they they had made the finals, I guess them making the finals was a bit of a surprise. So um, that was kind of how that uncomfortable situation happened, but didn't tell Ed McCauley about it uh, until the series was over, even though um, there were rumors about it. So not the best uh, handled situation by uh, old Ben. And uh, also um, forward center Woody Salisbury was the other kind of big addition to um, the uh, Hawks. But um this was another uh, – the the Celtics won really big in games one and four. Uh, two and five were closer, but it was eight and nine points, so not exactly that close. The The Hawks won – the only only game they won was a close game by uh, four uh, points in uh, game three. So um, one thing that maybe we don't appreciate today is the fact that the Hawks had to play game one in Boston one night after beating L.A. in St. Louis. So uh, the, the travel schedule did them no favors. No, and, and you know, going from that tough LA series to to Boston right away, and then uh, the Celtics, you know, won big in Game One and and kind of set the tone for the series at that point. Yeah. Um. In the uh, yeah, they're, they're not a whole lot like the the other series have more written about them. This one, it, it's kind of harder to find stuff, at least for me. Um, Russell averaged seventeen point six, twenty eight point eight, and four point four in the series. Kuzi had nineteen point eight five. Um. 
uh, five rebounds and 10.6 assists. Hagen, 29.4, 11.8, and 4.4. Uh, Pettit with 28.4, 16.4, and 3. Hagen actually kind of outproduced uh, Pettit in the uh, in the series, interestingly enough. Um, I guess on the boards, Pettit still won. But, um, you know, he, he was kind of uh, – uh, he, he performed well in the series, at least, at least production-wise. Um, game 5 was 121 to 112, the Celtics win. Um, Russell led all scorers with 30. Pettit had 24 and Hagen had 26. I, I couldn't find official rebound or assist totals in the uh, box score. Uh, the Compendium of Professional Basketball book, which is terrific uh, for anyone who can get their hands on it, um, it is. It says that Russell had 38 rebounds, so I will trust it. So 30 and 30 and 30, it's a pretty good game. That's not a, not a bad clinching game. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, at, at this point, obviously, you know, Russell has kind of you know, firmly established that he is really um, it, it was pretty evident right away. But he really um, is able to kind of cement like, OK, this is definitely your team. He's, he's by far bearing the heaviest burden in minutes and in and in defense. And, you know, he's um, you know, he, he's already earned. um uh, you know, a couple of MVPs at this point, and um, he won a second MVP in um, in '61. Uh, as a matter of fact, so he'd won two in uh, f- in four seasons, and then was runner up in the in '59 and '60. So, um, and in fact, would win uh, a total of five MVPs. Would come in second twice. Would come in third twice, and come in fourth twice. So, and then his first year, he came in seventh. Yeah, not a bad, not a bad start. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, so yeah. Anything else um, regarding this rivalry, or regarding the Hawks, or even the Celtics, that uh, stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to touch briefly on the. Uh, it's kind of a time of transition uh, in uh, for the Celtic or for the for the Hawks rather after the uh, they lose the series in um, in '61. Uh, they had a really rough season. The next season uh, had three coaches within the span of, of, of the season, um, finished with, uh, you know, 29 wins. Um, and so after being competitive year after year, they suddenly are, are, uh, have a high draft pick and they began reshaping their roster in a way that would really kind of transition them from St. Louis to Atlanta. Um, they drafted in, uh, in 1962, they drafted, um, Zelmo Beatty, uh, who is, ends up being an all-star center for them before going to the ABA. Uh, in the next couple seasons, they they traded for Bill Bridges, who was a, a strong uh, power forward. They they traded or they drafted Lou Hudson, who ends up becoming an all-star swingman, and uh, and Joe Caldwell, another uh, outstanding guard forward. And so they really had this transition from being this dominant um, this this white team located in St. Louis to the by the time they moved to Atlanta in uh, I think it's '68 uh, they moved to Atlanta they were almost entirely dominated by African-American stars. And as we've talked about, St. Louis was not the most tolerant, um, the, the most tolerant community in the, in the mid-60s. And this is in the midst of, of civil rights with Martin Luther King Jr. and with Malcolm X and with Bill Russell becoming more outspoken, uh, Muhammad Ali, kind of these athletes are becoming more outspoken about race. And so the Hawks um, get this backlash almost where attendance drops, uh, they're, they're still doing really well as a team with that one exception. Uh, they still are, are competitive with the, the San Francisco Warriors and the, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers in the, in the Western Division, but the fans just don't care anymore. Um, they had rallied around Bob Pettit, and when Pettit retires in, uh, in, 50, or sorry, in 65, um, the fans just didn't care. Uh, and so a combination of you know, this predominantly African-American team in, in St. Louis and uh, the fact that they they had kind of been spoiled. Um, in, in a way, it reminds me of Oklahoma City in a way. So when Oklahoma City got the uh, got the thunder, they added a team or, you know, they, Kevin Durant came with him uh, and they did really well and they're, they're still doing well. And you have to wonder if that fan support will still or how strong that fan support will be after Durant and or Westbrook leave, whether through free agency or retirement, but whether that will continue. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the St. Louis Hawks had this great success. Fans had gotten spoiled. They stopped competing for titles. 
their their you know their best players now are African American and Fan Inch Fish Wayne. Uh, and so in I think it's '68, they're sold to Atlanta, and uh, and the St. Louis Hawks are no more. Yeah, and and '68 was actually their strongest year in St. Louis. They you know the regular season year they won uh, 56 games and. Um, you you know had had been able to kind of um like you mentioned they had they had three pretty strong years after that downturn in 62 um toward the end of Pettit's career then they you know a couple years of just sort of being mediocre and then um you know, their their first few years in Atlanta actually the first three years in Atlanta they had um you know strong regular seasons they made the division finals um six times in nine years so they you know they were always kind of on the cusp uh Usually falling to, I think in almost all those instances except for maybe one, they lost to the Lakers. Probably in '67, they lost to the Warriors. So, um, you know, it's a, um, it's a tough, um, it, you know, it was obviously a tough thing for them to, um, uh, you know, to kind of crack that uh, that foundation and, and maybe, you know, um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know whether if circumstances had changed that they would have. Um, uh, survive if they would have been able to make it kind of in st louis um but then again um you know they've been they've been part of uh, atlanta not that atlanta is the uh, hottest uh, nba market by any means but you know i lived in atlanta for four years that's how in my 20s that's how i became an atlanta hawks fan so if they hadn't moved to atlanta and i hadn't had a chance to really um recapture my nba fandom through the uh, hawks i may not have turned into a nba super fan and this podcast may not exist so so like butterfly wings you know, starting, <laughs> you in 19, starting in 1965 with the Warriors having some coaching problems. Yeah. Now Jason's a basketball fan. There you go. So, so yeah. thanks, thanks for being racist, St. Louis. Wait, no, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's not. I didn't mean that. I apologize. That uh, no. I, anyway, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I didn't uh, terribly offend some people from uh, that uh, with that comment. But maybe we'll edit that one out and post. Um, so. Uh, uh, anything else that we should uh, we, we should talk about, Adam, before we go? No, I think that this was a it's it was a lot of fun to come on here and talk about the the Hawks and Celtics rivalry. I think that there it's it's often overshadowed by the rivalry that immediately uh, succeeds it because it's almost it's a transition where the Hawks and Lakers are kind of vying for that that spot in the West and the the Lakers kind of gain the advantage then in the uh, in the mid '60s and the Hawks fade and the and the Lakers rise and. And uh, brings about a whole new, uh, a whole new and, and and far better known rivalry. Yes, absolutely. So, which we will, uh, we'll have a show on that one as well. We're kind of planning to go through the uh, major uh, rivalries that the uh, Celtics had in in the playoffs and in a format just like this. So, um, so that'll be fun Excellent. to uh, to talk about and um, to get in to dig into other aspects of uh, Bill Russell's uh, career as well. We have a lot of cool things planned for our WrestleMania. So if you are enjoying it, um, please let us know. Um, I, I, we can get us on Twitter or Facebook at Over and Back NBA. Uh, we also, um, it would be great if you would uh, uh, check us out on HarborProxism.com, which is the home of our podcast. Uh, also, you can uh, find us on, uh, or if you would, uh, if you'd be, do so if you would, uh, Give us a rating and review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, whatever you uh, prefer to use. We would uh, love that. That would uh, help people uh, let people know about the show and spread the word and all that good stuff. And makes us feel good to have uh, compliments uh, thrown our way. So, uh, anyway, until next time, uh, thanks for uh, listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.